Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And our special guest on today's podcast is Emily Bender. Emily is the CEO of Wealth Voice and was an integral part in the Voice from the Hills origin story. I got to hear Emily speak for the first time at a CityWire event a few years ago. It was really on the basis of that presentation that we decided to take the plunge. And we're not alone. Over 128 million people in the U.S. are utilizing voice assistance. And the ability for businesses to communicate through voice represents one of the biggest opportunities, but also one of the biggest challenges to our traditional communication system. Today's pod is both a highlight of Emily's work and the future of voice, but also an insight into both the challenges and opportunities that this new platform presents. So let's talk the future of communication and the power of voice with the CEO of Wealth Voice, Emily Bender. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good afternoon, Emily, and thank you for joining us. Hi, James. Great to be here. Hey, let's start by getting just a little bit about your origin story. Can you walk our listeners through your career path that led you to where you are right now? Yeah, my career path has been mostly in marketing. And then about six years ago, I branched off and started consulting, doing my own thing, created a marketing agency, and then um, had a lot of clients who wanted to focus on voice and podcasting. And about two years ago, I launched Wealth Voice, which was a way to do that at scale and create a product so people could easily share their hands-free homepage and their updates. And so you're a, were a psychology student at Michigan, correct? That's right. Now, when you were going through that, were you, were you doing it with the idea that uh, you were going to be studying branding or working in branding, or did you start with a different mindset? Oh, actually, it was very different. I wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to do social psychology. I almost went and went to grad school, did the GRE, all of that. But it didn't really work out. And then I ended up falling into marketing pretty serendipitously and ended up really enjoying it. And there's a lot of psychology and marketing. So it ended up being a good, unpredicted fit. So after you kind of fell into marketing, when, when when did you kind of start to understand the power of voice? Or when did you get sold on, on voice marketing as, as something that's going to be the future of, of marketing and branding? It's probably around 2015. So I've done marketing, pretty much everything under the sun, whether it's traditional or digital, branding, direct response, all kinds of industries. Um, but I've been podcasting kind of as a hobby probably over 10 years and always had a, a soft spot for anything audio and voice. But it was when that first Echo came out that I really saw the writing on the wall with this device that is hassle-free, convenient, easily adopted, fastest adopted ever and yet little content on it yet. So big opportunity, because what you see over time is that the content and the ad dollars always follows the adoption of the device, whether we're talking about the PC and then the smartphone and on. So smart speaker being that next evolution. 
So you actually had your eye on the hardware adoption before thinking about any of the implications as far as, as how to get on that platform. Yes. The hardware adoption. I saw that it was, it was just, okay, here's the early moment. Like this is the time to get in. It would be like putting up your .com in the early days of the internet. But then from the kind of marketing and content side, I've always been a big podcast fan. I've created them. I've helped people create them. So that that's one wing of this, right? This, this whole voice marketing triangle, uh, the recorded voice, not interactive, not necessarily smart voice is it's the quickest way to form an intimate connection with a listener. It's like, we've looked at the stats on this and, you know, I talk about this all the time. Voice is the fastest way to reach somebody emotionally. It's processed 10 times faster than the blink of an eye. So you can send someone an email or a white paper. That's good. But if you are able to connect with them with your voice, especially on a consistent basis, even little quick clips, they're going to grow an affinity and trust for you and your brand faster and in a more, a more of associative way, just from the brain perspective. Right. And so I know when we first started working together, I, I didn't even own a microphone. So, you know, we were getting our message out in traditional, in traditional manners and hadn't really explored voice. And I know just from my own journey through it, that there are some quirks. I mean, there's some challenges. I mean, why is it that we all cringe at the sound of our own voice? Why, why is that such a, such a hassle to get over? Most people do. It's because you're used to hearing your own voice echoing inside of your skull and the vibrations and the actual sound of it is different from how it sounds to everyone else out in the world. A little different, just enough that it is jarring to you when you first hear your voice recorded for the first time. I think people are getting over that hurdle more and more with things like the advent of voice texts and iMessage and podcasts and people are getting more comfortable with it. But it used to be just people on the radio would ever hear their own recorded voice. And one of the things you did fairly recently talks about the power of voice as a first impression. I think you talk about it as a seven thirty eight fifty five rule. Right, right. That was how a- does how does voice interact with brand, and how does it imprint better so than some of the other uh, mediums out there? Well, so that rule is really interesting. I was doing some research on how important is the sound of your voice and what tips could I give people to make their voice actually sound better, a little warmer, more authoritative, whatever you're going for. And this rule says that only 7% of all communication is actually verbal, like the words that you are saying, whatever, if we were to do a transcript of this, the true words that I say, it's like 7% of the idea, but the rest of it is all voice and body language. So video is important too. Um, but when you're in person, it's, it's really the sound of your voice that makes the first impression. There was this study from Yale in 2017. And the voice is what makes you believe someone or like or trust somebody much faster and more powerfully than whether they give you a hug or say the right words. Yeah. And I think even in the, in the context of us doing more virtual meetings, you, you would think that the video component of virtual is, is really important, but actually the audio component of it is is really key in terms of you know what that person's interest level is are they speaking from authority or are they speaking in, in search of help i mean just trying to understand that voice inflection the the upspeak and the downspeak and all those things that you talk about uh, is is such a big thing and one of the things i realized when we prepared to do more voice marketing 
is it made us better in the meetings that we actually had with our clients. Mm-hmm. It, it made us, you know, a lot of times I, I hear Jim O'Shaughnessy talking all the time about how, if you have an idea, you need to write it down. And then if you can write it down, then you really understand it. And I think there's a very similar thing that happens with voice. If you have an idea or a strategy that you follow and you make a voice uh, file out of it, or you try to explain it verbally, sometimes it doesn't explain as well verbally as it does in your mind. And you realize, well, man, I don't know this as well as I need to. And so one of the, one of the great things that working with your company helped me is to just understand how to verbalize my ideas and challenge those ideas through a verbal imprint. Yes. I remember you saying that early on and I thought that's really good feedback because I think what you, you said something like this has really helped us distill our ideas down and who was, was it Mark Twain? The one who said, you know, if I don't have much time, I'll write a hundred pages. If I have plenty of time to really think about it, I'll write one page or something like that. So it's true though, because it's like getting your idea distilled down, but then also using the tone of voice and using a nice microphone, good equipment like you have. You can start small and, you know, get something simple and inexpensive, but the better the equipment, the better the Zoom call, the better the business, because that's how, that's how we're doing business mostly, right? Don't show up with something that sounds bad. It's, it's grating. It'll make that first impression worse. And then the tone of voice. And it impacts on everything else you do. If you're, if, if this equipment is not the highest quality, then well, is your software the highest quality? You know, it it just, it creates that impression that uh, you you really don't want. Yeah. In essence, I love the way you talk about, you talk about all companies have two components, really the, it's the service and product that we're offering. And then there's the marketing, there's the content and the branding. Essentially, that's what makes us choose who we do business with. Let's talk through what makes up that marketing component and how those things work together to help people choose us. What makes the marketing component? Marketing is really, there's there's a misconception. People think that it's advertising or that they're interchangeable. They're very different. Advertising is a component of marketing. Marketing is really anything that you do that is customer facing, whatever puts you in front of your end user, client or customer, that's any activity that could be advertising, that could be doing a podcast, that could be the look and feel of your website. This is all the branding, which feeds the marketing. The marketing is is getting the message of the brand out there. Sometimes you're asking for a sale. Sometimes you're just sharing information to be top of mind when they are eventually ready to buy, to hire. So what was, what was the other part of the question? It's the marketing. Well, I think products. it, it kind of leads into those, the, that three pillars of persuasion that you talk about. I, mean, I think you talk about ethos, pathos, and, and logos. Yes. And, and really, to me, that's what ends up making that second, that second pillar, at least in our service-oriented industry. Uh, talk, talk the listeners through that. That's, that's very interesting to me for those people who haven't uh, listened to your work and your podcast. I think it's a very interesting take on how you put those things together. Yes, definitely. So this was what you're referencing is one of my episodes. I have a mini podcast. So if anyone's interested, we'll put a link in the show notes. There's an episode called ethos, pathos, and logos, the three pillars of persuasion and marketing. So you really need all three. Um, a lot of people might be stronger in one. And so you want to make sure that you're hitting on all of those ethos is, is your credibility, your authority, your subject matter expertise. Why should anybody trust what you have to say? So you have to establish that. 
um, the logos is, you know, logic. These are all Latin root words. The logic is, okay, you should buy this because this many, this is the percentage of returns that our clients see, or this is the, you should brush your teeth because 70% of people who use Crest have fewer cavities. But really, if you want to sell toothpaste, you're going for an emotional connection. So that's the pathos, which is you want to have fresh breath so you can get a girlfriend. That's what the ad should really be about. You can support it with the ethos, like all the dentists trust us. And then you've got the logos, like here's the chart of decreased gingivitis, but the ad should be about you're going to look better and be more attractive when you have a clean mouth. So think about that for whatever you're selling. You have to have those three pillars of persuasion in any marketing message. And I think it, it, it makes sense that it's easier for quantitative oriented people to go on the ethos and logos uh, platform and, and very easy for them to totally abandon or ignore the pathos part of it. And right. one, of, one of your posts that I really loved was the, the one about Corona beer uh, and how you, it, it's, it's really more, it, it's not obviously anybody who's had a Corona beer knows it's not the you know, highest level of beer drinking experience but the idea is how they sold the pathos of it, how they, how they sold the lifestyle, how they sold the escape of it. And, and even to the point of putting the lime in the beer, they create this, you know, this habitual, almost ritualistic way to consume the product or think about the product. Is there anybody in the financial industry that you see that does pathos really well? Oh, you know who I'm going to say. So the first example that comes to mind, of course, is Ritholtz, Josh Brown, those guys. It's definitely an emotional connection. It's very real. I feel like you know them. If you watch their podcasts, listen to them, read their blogs as well. Because the, like Nick Majuli's new book, the first part of this, Just Keep Buying, great book. Everybody should go buy it. Um, in the very beginning of the book, he tells a story about his grandfather and a gambling addiction. And it's like, oh, that's a really strong opener because you feel like he's he's being a little vulnerable. He's telling a true story instead of just here are the facts. Here's what we've looked at the data, even though the data is a great component of the book. But you have to do something emotional, a little storytelling. And it's OK to do that. You don't have to worry like the professional and the personal. They are still separate, but the lines have blurred so much and it becomes more effective when you bring your real self into business. Yeah, and then you've you've been a real advocate for that kind of audio native world. And so I, I think in the pathos, if we stick with pathos for a second, it, it's a lot easier to feel like you're dropping in on a conversation with people to feel like they have an empathy for your situation or a true concern for it. And they're not just necessarily selling you their book or whatever. Uh, but when you think about it, when you think about that music, the memory, the sonic branding, all those things you talk about, what does that audio native world look like in the future? And where are we on that path? We're still in somewhat early days. I mean, I've been working on this since specifically been working on, I'll call it Lexi. So I don't set off anyone's device, Lexi skills, Google actions. <laughs> Thank you. Like, Cause I've got one in the room here. <laughs> I have to always mute mine before, but it's still um, where we are in that cycle. So we're past the early adopter phase. If you look at the technology adoption curve of any new tech, there, it's a bell, right? So you have your early adopters, early majority, and then you get into the late majority. And then it gets into the point where it's just quotidian. Everyone has it like an iPhone. There were the early adopters and 
there weren't any good apps on it at the time. Um, I'll touch on that in a minute. But where we are with the voice thing, it is ubiquitous. It, it's the number one voice assistant, Alexa. But I mean, Google also has a lot of market share and Siri. Siri has more market share on mobile versus in the smart home space. But there are over 50% of searches done by voice now. It was 30% was my stat I was saying for a while, and now it's even higher. So people are searching on voice. They're getting used to it. It's hands-free. And you'll start to see more and more devices that have that voice option. It doesn't have to be just voice. It's actually better when it's multimodal so that you can interact with touch, with voice. There's visuals. There's audio. Um. The smart speaker I, thing. I know one of the things that's kind of worked well for us is integrating that voice into traditional written content. Mm-hmm. You know, having having the ability for somebody to opt out of reading all of the content and just click on a on a voice yeah. summary. Yeah, a tip uh, I'll give to the listeners on, on to piggyback on that is if you are blogging, which you should do, it's it's still really important for SEO and for other things. Like some people prefer to read than listen. There are easy plugins where you can embed at the top, like Amazon Polly, it's a free WordPress plugin. Um, you can use other ones. You could literally record it as a podcast and embed it at the top. So give people that audio option. There's free apps like Pocket that Danny Favre recommended. I still use that. So you can experience things on the go, hands-free, like multitasking. You don't have to sit and read something. So giving people that extra option is always a way to level up. And, and so let's talk about leveling up. For When you're talking about creating content, obviously it's you know, you can buy these plugins and things like that, that will translate your, your written words into, you know, into transcript. And then you could go and and make a voice file out of that. But it, it, I think people will find when they try to do that, that it comes off as inauthentic and, and a little cringy. What's the best way for somebody to start creating voice content that emphasizes that product or service that they offer? What what should they look at in terms of their overall marketing platform as it exists today when they make that decision to add voice to it? It depends how much time you want to put into it. So you can start a podcast. Podcasts are wonderful. There are over a million out there. It's very competitive because this has become more saturated since the leverage to produce a podcast has decreased because the ease has increased and the volume of content has also increased. You're going to get something out of it. But another option, if you wanted to do something short and easy without committing to that, would be doing something like Wealth Voice. Or if you don't do Wealth Voice, you could do just little audio clips and make them into audiograms. It doesn't have to be a commitment to a podcast like this where you're interviewing people and editing it and posting it on a set cadence. There's still ways to share your voice faster. So Wealth Voice, for example, you know, you're on Wealth Voice you can drop in a voice memo whenever you want and it goes out with notifications and then you can audiogram it and get more mileage out of that. So that's another option if you don't want to necessarily do something longer form. And I think you refer to it a lot in that uh, one of the, one of the mistakes that people make is they, we work really hard on creating our content. We put it out there one or two times and then we never really readdress it again. And so the, the, the effort involved in creating the content uh, doesn't work in terms of the distribution cycle. Talk a little bit about breaking up that content into different uh, distribution methodologies like you talked about with the audiogram and with Wealth Voice, but also talk about how getting past that urge of thinking that we're spamming people by posting something more than once or twice. I mean, the odds are not very good that 
most of the people who we want to see our message even see it the first first time. So what's a good best practice for taking a maybe a podcast or maybe something that's a little longer form and content, breaking that up into bite-sized things and putting it out on a wealth voice or audiogram or you know, reintroducing it to the social media audience over time? A simple way is go on your website, look at your analytics, look at your top blog posts, which pages get the most hits? What are the top searches people are looking for? Or what's your favorite thing you've ever written or tweeted? You could even go on Twitter analytics and say, what were my top engaged tweets from the last year? Okay. They were about these topics. They were about, I don't know, backdoor Roth IRAs um, or estate planning or maybe college savings, whatever is that topic. Just grab something you've already written. There's your script. It could be a minute long and you can voice record that. You could even do it on your iPhone if you don't have a nice microphone and you could drop it in and make an audiogram. We have posts um, at wealthvoice.ai slash blog with tips on like exactly how to do that. It's easy. And um, just sharing it like that is a good way to go. But the key, like you said, you have to reshare these things. It has to be, I would use a tool like Buffer or Hootsuite, like a free social media scheduling tool. And you can basically paste the post to go out in October and then again in February because you'll end up getting more engagement on it. Don't expect people are going to scrape through your whole website and go find that old post. But when they see it anew, they probably haven't seen it before. So if you write it once, schedule it in the future so that it automates. Just like dollar cost average, automate that, automate your social posts. Oh, that's a good way to speak to the financial advisors out there. They'll, they'll love that. That's great. What's your favorite piece of content? What's the what's that one morsel of content that you put out that you keep looking back on and go, wow, that was cool? Actually, it's a YouTube video. It's I put out a YouTube video a few years ago when I was just trying to teach myself how to do YouTube. Like, what works? How do you film this? It's not great quality. It's about how to file an LLC. One I've seen my, it. Yeah. yeah. One, it has like 60,000 views. I didn't do anything to get those views. It just kind of got scraped and got lucky. And then my channel got monetized from it. But the, the reason that's my favorite is I've had so I've had hundreds of comments of people who watch the video and they say, Oh, can you help me with this? What's a registered agent? What can I have a DBA different from my LLC help? And I said, I'm not, I'm not an attorney. Like this is not official advice. This is my experience. This is, you know, check with your legal team, but that's great because people have, helped people have asked for help and I've been able to give them the information and I've had so it's really nice like emotionally to see these comments like wow thank you for your video I'm so excited I feel empowered I now know what to do the information was so shrouded before like trying to figure it out and you just made it clear um whenever I do things like that that help people even if it's not exactly on like voice marketing something I know (laughs) that I can share I get the most out of that well, yeah, and I, I think you have one of those sites that's probably easier to binge listen to than anyone I've I've seen because you start and you know you'll you'll go through email tips, you'll go through the six you know six best free things on on the internet. So it's it's not always talking your book. It's hey, this is something that's you know was useful to me. It might be useful to you. It it, it feels like a real collaboration of ideas, and then occasionally there's the you know there's the voice stuff. Uh, embedded in that. Did you ever have a piece of content that you did that you thought, oh, this is just killer and it just got no, no <laughs> well, real sure. engagement? It's, let me think. So I do 
my podcast, you can see what James is talking about. It's at emilybender.com slash podcast. They're five minutes or less. They're quick hit. It's anything about marketing business voice, but it might give you ideas if you're wondering, like, how can I do something short in voice? That is, there are so many times I've put one out where I was like, this one's really useful or really good. I can't even remember right now, but if I were to look at my list of episodes, um, you know, the ethos, pathos, logos one I thought was pretty cool. I think sometimes when you have words like that in your title, people, it's not as catchy a title as the one where, what was the one you really liked about the accountant? It was like, oh, why strippers dress as firemen and not accountants? Yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for the uh, for the sexual entendre headlines. I know. So. I mean, they work. I don't do them without purpose. Like, it always does tie back, but you can drop those in once in a while, too. Just be- I mean, comparing Bank of America to the Middle Age Virgin, that was a good one, too. That, <laughs> that, that one stuck. Right. So that mm. one I, I expected to do well. It did. It did pretty well. Um, I've got, let's see. These. Oh, this one. Two frogs drowning in milk. The fable from the slight edge. I think that's a really neat episode. I don't think that one got as many hits as I thought it would, but you never know what's going to hit. Um, that's why you have to try a bunch of different things. And I think that's a good message for anybody that's, whether they're starting out or whether they've done this forever is sometimes you'll do something that I remember talking to Samantha Russell and she was talking about some of the things that were her most engaging content and how she was kind of surprised that, you know, that they were. And, and some of the things that we, we tend to think, well, this is going to be just, you know, just great. And then you'll get, you know, 400 views of it. And, and that's it. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to gauge the, uh, it's really hard to gauge how something's going to be perceived. So let's talk about that. The, the platforms, the analytics, that data measurements, where should we be placing our messaging and how do we measure it? How do we see if it's working? Where, where do we get involved in the numbers and where do we have to take a, a step back and relax a little bit and, and understand that it's, it's branding and not necessarily something that's going to pay dividends in a, in a real short window. Right. You can always look at your analytics in any of these social platforms, LinkedIn analytics, Twitter analytics, Facebook analytics, and that'll give you an idea of which posts are succeeding, but how do you define success? You know, if you hit a couple people the right way, maybe it doesn't get a ton of engagement, but that's all you need. That's the point. It's not about finding an audience of a million necessarily. I mean, for most people, it's not. Um, those analytics are great. I have a um, love-hate with podcast analytics because looking at how many people listen to your show and seeing growth over time is good, but you don't want to get bogged down in that number where you get obsessed with it because then you start to create content to try to grow the show when really you should be creating content to deliver value. Whatever that topic is, it might not be a popular topic, but you'll you'll run the risk of creating for the wrong reasons when you are driven purely by those metrics. And P.S., the data is good, but it's not perfect. It's, it's better than a Nielsen household data. Yes, this many people saw your commercial. None of that was accurate. We have a better idea of who's seeing what, but there's still, it's so polluted. You know, with bots, analytics are, they're not perfect either. And it's hard to try. This is especially the key. It's really hard to triangulate um, the the whole funnel of all the impressions that you made on somebody because there's something called the last click attribution model. Most analytics, Google analytics are kind of defaulted to that. So if someone comes to your website, 
And what's the source of this click? Oh, organic search. Cool. Maybe they've been following me on Twitter for two years. It wasn't really an organic search out of the blue, but you won't know that from the data. So you just need to keep putting the content out, stay consistent, stay true to your message, wherever you feel like the right audience plays. People have different audiences on different channels. TikTok might not be your audience. Could be. It's it's been really successful for some really niche people and actually in finance too. Yeah, and I think the I mean for me, I'm not sure if if you're the one that posted this or if it was somebody else, but they talked about seven different uh contacts being necessary to to develop kind of a purchasing decision. Yep. Uh, I think that was you. That was me. Um and I find that that's, that's true in most of the time when we, you know, after we've gotten a client on board for a while and we find out exactly what their journey was to get to us, uh, it was never just a one or two step journey. It might've started with a referral, that referral brought them to our website, the website brought them to the podcast, the podcast brought them back to discussing a podcast episode with maybe that referral source or somebody else. And, and then there's, so this last mile attribution thing is really, really difficult, whether they did it on mobile or desktop or, or whatever. Uh, I think the most important thing is to be engaging and be authentic with what you're doing. You know, understand who it is that you want to help and how you can help them. Uh, and all these things tend to kind of work together. I, I know, I know you talked about wealth voice being partially a response to, uh, to email and the, and just that ability to reclaim your, or, you know, control your day, I think is the way you, uh, the way you put it. And, and I think that's true in a lot of cases. I think the average executives getting probably between 150 and 300 emails a day. Uh, I think we're trying to, send out our messages via email and worried that we're, you know, just contributing to the, to the clutter. Talk about how wealth voice helps you kind of control your day from the standpoint of getting your message out and then maybe share a couple tips. I know you had a, a post or two on it uh, for the executives and people who are just struggling to get to inbox zero or even care about inbox zero anymore. How can they kind of reclaim their day and also reclaim their message? The original idea for Wealth Voice, a big part of it was get your day back. So I heard from a lot of advisors when I'm consulting, I have clients still with Beetle Moment on the retainer side. They're busy. And one of the hurdles was I have to do another marketing channel. I have to commit to a podcast. I don't have time. I have to make more phone calls. I have to answer more emails. So the problem was how do you continue to connect authentically and still provide that warmth where they feel like, okay, this guy's in my corner. I trust him. I know him, but without spending so many hours. And what if you could transmit the sound of your voice easily and hands-free and get a lot of other benefits from it, like voice search. And there's a marketing aspect to it too. Like someone can say, Lexi, tell me about Silicon Hills Wealth. Ask Silicon Hills Wealth to tell me about James. Then we've got James's headshot. Hi, this is James Warner. I'm with Silicon Hills Wealth here in Austin, Texas. And you've got your little, like you always say that, it's memorable. And someone could visit that and hear that for two minutes. Like, oh, cool. I want to do business with them. Maybe they never open it again. That's the point. So just like you establish your presence anywhere else, this is your hands-free presence. And everyone has this device, but 
there's not a lot of content on it yet. So you're still going to rank really high. Like that's the other benefit, the search part. Yeah. And I think people miss that the, the benefit of the search part. Can you delve into that a little bit more and, and explain why that's important? Sure. So from a voice search perspective, I mentioned earlier, roughly 50% of searches are screenless. So that includes if I say, Hey Siri and ask a question. Um, there's also the aspect of people are asking the voice assistants like Lexi or Google. Those are the main players. I won't mention the others. Mostly it's music, news, weather, and questions. That's the most common use cases for this. But they'll be asking questions about terms that you might be trying to rank for. Amazon's the third largest search engine in the world after Google and YouTube. So you can play there. And the beauty of it is that there's very little content comparatively. If you run a search for a term like investing advice on Google, I think there might be up to like a billion results. If you're doing it on voice search or with Lexi, you've got maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand on the Alexa side. And the cool thing about it too, is that this is where everybody goes to search for products. Maybe they're searching for books. If you have a skill, which is an app, a wealth voice app, you're going to be ranking next to books on Amazon. So it's searched just like a product, someone who's in that market for financial advice or information. Like we're also branching into fitness, real estate, legal. Like it's every field. Just started with finance because I love this industry. And so as a as a follow-up to that, let's just talk for a moment about the combined challenges of one, being an entrepreneur in and of itself, uh, but two, also being an entrepreneur inside an emerging industry. Uh, okay. What, how can you speak to that? There's got to be multi, there are multi-layer challenges, right? Uh, what's the, what's the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity that you have based on that? So the challenges are the same that I think any entrepreneur would have. And I, I used to be hesitant to even use that phrase because it's sometimes a little overused. Both of my parents are entrepreneurs. Um, been doing my own thing for like six years, I think, since I've had a, an employer. But the challenge is, you will get out of it as much as you put in and you're the only one who makes yourself put anything in every day when you get up. It's okay. I have to make myself sit down and do this. I don't have to clock in. I don't have anybody watching me and that it doesn't suit every personality type. So I still struggle with time management sometimes um, like finding the right rhythm of the day of when I'm most productive. I experiment with different ones. Sometimes I do a very atypical schedule um, starting your own thing, the hardest part is that everything is a question and a lot of it's for the first time. So it's always a shot in the dark. Like, oh, will this tool work? Should I hire this person? Is this the right tagline for my website? Does this logo look good? Um, should I spend money on this or should I keep the product where it is? Like, I don't need this upgrade. So, so many questions. Everything's just a learning process. Then beyond that, doing it in an emerging industry, James, has been extremely difficult. So for two years... I'm explaining a product to people who in frequently haven't heard of it or don't quite know what it is or what it means. So finding the right way to explain it and why it's valuable. I'm not here to sell you something you don't need, but you could use this. Here's how that's been tough. And sometimes it gets discouraging because we're not at that point in the adoption cycle where it's just this quotidian thing. Like everyone has a website, everyone has a voice experience. That's also the benefit though. That's the benefit too, right? It's your early, you're, you're like the first one of the first few. There's always a benefit to that. But it there's always be, discomfort in being early. Yeah, for sure. I've questioned it many times. Like, oh, I should have just done something that was easier. 
I should have done something that everybody already knows about. <laughs> so for whatever reason, I chose this path. Well, I think that's what makes your, your posts so engaging is that they're obviously experientially driven. I mean, you, you can tell that this isn't, this isn't something you just decided to do a post about. This is something that you really, truly experienced. You went through, you kind of walked through the, the journey that you're talking about. I mean, you can just feel it, you know, it just, just by listening to it. And so I guess that's partially some of the reward for, you know, for taking the road, less travel, but, but there's also that, that awesome thing about creating a small pond for yourself. We all, we all hear about the big fish in the small pond and the small fish in the big pond. Well, we're all a very small fish in the Google pond, no matter how we, no matter how big we think we are. But if you could take a billion search results and narrow it down to a thousand, uh, just because of the platform that you're on, I mean, that seems to me to be a very powerful, you know, motivating tool. And so let's talk for a second about how businesses can prepare to take their message to voice. What kind of commitment should they be willing to take from a time perspective? What kind of measurements should they be thinking about in terms of, uh, in terms of ROI, uh, and just what kind of milestones should they maybe create for themselves to help themselves understand that, yes, I'm early, but this is actually progressing in a manner that is, is worthwhile to the business. Hmm. Okay. So milestones first decide what you want out of it. What's your goal is your goal. Let's try something new. Let's see how it goes. We want to be early. Then just a measurement of, did we do this consistently? And did we get any good feedback? That could be the first, you know, KPI, but standard KPIs apply engagement. Look at how many, if you're doing a podcast, how many listeners? Um, another one that's really key, I think is even a bigger indicator than number of listeners is called completion rate. So what percentage of each show did people listen all the way through, even in multiple settings? But if your completion rate is 15%, something's wrong with your content because people aren't tapping in for the whole thing, especially if it's a short show. So you're going for a much higher one. I mean, at least 70, you want a hundred, ideally there's that, uh, how do we know if this is working? Well, you have to decide, like I said, the goal. So did we establish our brand? Did we put our voice out there? Uh, do we have this cool content that we're updating? Do we have a, like a voice hub page or a podcast or a media page where we're adding that's helping the website? Can we look at the website and see if the rankings went up over the past year? Give it time because it doesn't happen overnight. Is there something else that you were... I don't know if I got the whole question, like zeroing. Well, in. I know for us, like when we started, we weren't exactly sure what we wanted to get out of it. I mean, we had some, some general idea. Uh, one of the biggest advantages that we've gotten is when we started integrating our voice with our written content, the engagement of our existing clients on our content went way up. I mean, we were, we were getting 50 to 60% engagement and it went to, 75, 85% engagement, uh, right. with just that, with just that thing. So that was a huge benefit. Uh, obviously it's not going to be an ROI benefit in terms of new relationships developed, but I think for most service oriented businesses, our most important clients are the ones we already have. So right. it's a huge ROI for us to increase their engagement or increase their, 
their knowledge base. I think the second thing that it enabled us to do is allow our existing clients and partners to eavesdrop on the conversations that we have all the time. Yep. I mean, we weren't talking, we're not talking to these industry experts. I mean, you and I probably talk at least once a month, right? This isn't an unusual conversation for us to have. And I think it's important for your partners and your, uh, and your clients to understand the access that you have to people who are experts in various, you know, various parts of the wealth management industry that impact their totality of the, the quality of their wealth management plan. Right. And at the end of the day, what we did in wealth through wealth voice or what we did through voice marketing made us so much better at what we were doing on a daily basis that if we didn't get one customer out of it, it was worth it. Exactly. That, that's not how I looked at it going in, honestly, because I, I went in with just as I do with most, most things, just total ignorance. Um, didn't know what kind of mic to buy, what kind of system to have. Do we need a studio? How do we possibly, you know, put content out there? How do we transcribe it? I mean, a million questions, no answers. Uh, and and the great thing about working with you is that you had answers to all those questions and had, even when I had a different answer than you had, you had a context uh, for it. And I think that's that was super helpful to me in going into something that was a complete unknown is not only because a lot of times we go into something as a complete unknown and we interact with the hardware, but we don't necessarily have that handholding that, that person who's been there to tell us, Oh yeah, that was probably not the best way to, <laughs> to do what you did here. Here's a better way. I mean, you've always been really good for, for me at least at providing that constructive criticism that was, that was helpful, but also motivational, not, not something that just made me want to, you know, throw the, uh, throw the microphone in the trash and, and, and write a blog post. So, you know, so that's important to me. And I think, I think everybody needs to understand that despite your best plans, whatever you think your, I, I would always encourage people to do this, write down what you hope to, what you hope to get out of any new endeavor and also compare that to what you fear will happen to your company if you aren't involved in that endeavor and it becomes something that everybody else is involved in. Um, I always put those two things side by side, and when the opportunities are better than the fears, I try to go forward with it. And what I always find is that ultimately the things that provided the most benefit usually weren't on my initial list. Yeah. Like what, what other examples? Cause that's an interesting statement. I'm curious what else you, you dabbled in that you were skeptical at first. Uh, well, we, when we started working with uh, charitable planning, that was a, uh, that was one that, uh, we got almost universal pushback, uh, within the industry. Uh, and I would talk about how we were going to spend some time helping our clients develop their charitable mission, help them engage with, uh, the different charitable institutions and help our clients give away money. And, you know, the uh, nine times out of 10, Emily, the reaction I would get was, wait a minute, you're going to help your clients give away money. And you think that's a, 
that's a good financial strategy for a financial planner who gets compensated based on, you know, the assets that they manage. And that was a universal thing. And, and so we started doing it. And then when we started interacting with people on the other side at, at the university of Texas and at different uh, charitable organizations, and we told them what we wanted to, what we were doing and how we were doing it, they would almost stop the passive listening that they were doing. They were, they would start in passive listening mode because they would think here's just another financial advisor. Here's another wealth management firm telling us how they put their model portfolios together and, you know, yada, yada. They were just ready to kind of passive listen all the way through. And I would start discussing what we were doing and then they would almost invariably stop and say, well, wait a minute. What, what is it you're doing? And that's when I knew we had something because it was universally scoffed at by the people in our industry. And it was the one thing that brought a passive listener to active attention almost immediately. And I was like, wow, those two things cannot be wrong. And then, you know, four years later, I actually managed to, we actually managed to make something out of it that was remotely something that would look profitable from a quantifiable standpoint. Uh, but the program itself, although it took three or four years to develop, is an engine that will continue to propel the firm forward for the next 10, 15 years, probably. So is the investment worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it is it hard in the early days to get through it when nobody else understands it and you feel like you're the only one who shares that opinion? Yeah, it's, it's uh, very difficult to stay committed to it. Yeah. Uh, well... It does help when you have people in your life, whether they're business associates or friends, but especially there have been so many wonderful supportive people in the financial services industry, like the FinTwit community. Like you're one of them that from the get go, oh, cool. We support you. We get it. Good for you. Um, happy to spread the word. Everything we've done has been 100% organic. I haven't spent a dollar on advertising. And I'm really grateful. Like Whipfly, PlanCorp, Tyrone, Ross, um, you snappy Kraken, like all of our very early customers a couple years ago, it was, it was easier than if I didn't have those people in my corner who got it and believed in the idea of it. And really it's just about authentic connection. Uh, it's not, it's not an ad platform. It's content. It's like you said, though, with the cost to acquire a customer and Kits has, has an article, he said the Average financial advisor cost to acquire a client, the CAC, is about $3,100. The lifetime value is going to be higher than that, of course. But it costs 10 times more to acquire a new client or customer than it does to retain an existing one. But you do have to invest in the activities that retain people, especially in exactly. certain businesses where there is so much choice available. Even if you think we're sticky, the switching cost is high, no one's going to leave. You still have to keep those people feeling delighted, not just neutral. Right. And I think your your customers also have to understand and your clients have to understand that you're not in neutral, that yes. you're trying new ideas, that you're out there curating. Because you, you talked about the idea of uh, the middleman. And of course, the middleman always, you know, gets kind of a, you know, kind of a bad rap in my opinion, but you did it in one of your posts in the opposite way. You talked about Airbnb and, and some of the other uh, 
you know, services that are essentially, uh, essentially middlemen in an ultimate process where they're curating the experience for you. And I think that's as financial advisors, that's what we end up doing. Uh, you know, we have a, an individual who has uh, an end goal, whether it's on their investment side, whether it's on their legacy planning, whether it's on their philanthropy, what, whatever it happens to be, there's any number of providers or strategies or things like that that can help them get from point A to point B. Uh, they could interact with all of those individually. It would be laborious, and some people, you know, have the the wherewithal and the motivation and the interest level to do that. Uh, but most people don't. They want to in they want to interact with uh, a middleman. They want to interact with a platform. They want to interact with a trusted source that's going to go out there and curate those ideas so that they feel like that that person or that process or that service is looking for the best ideas for them, knows them well enough to know what differentiates a, a good idea from a better one in their own life cycle. And that is, that has that ethos, that has that credibility that they're going to actually go out there and try to find the best possible solution from a fiduciary standpoint and not just find a solution that can be sold. And, and I think if you have those things, you've got, uh, you've probably got a customer for life. Uh, and, you know, like you said, whether it's a $3,100 investment or not, I'm not going to quibble with, Michael Kitsis when it comes to quantifiable numbers. But I would say this, that there's also another cost because as we've worked together over the last few years, you've become to know me more uh, better. So you have a better idea what new things might work with me and what won't, what my reactions are going to be. It's the same thing in our business. As we work with a client, there's that, there's that knowledge, there's that just really understanding of someone's situations and how they react to certain things, what's really important to them, what's not, what they have trouble communicating with between spouses, where, you know, where we can serve as that, as that helpful buffer, where we need to stand out of the way, where we need to be encouraging. And those things only happen with time. You don't understand somebody, no matter how well your service offering is, no matter how well thought out your product offering is, you just don't understand somebody well enough and they don't understand you well enough or or relate to you well enough to really buy into that. And so I think the value of that over time is so much more valuable than looking at someone as it's $3,100 to bring you under the fold. I mean, to me, that's that's kind of burying the lead. The lead is let's grow together. Let's put a relationship together that just is non-quantifiable in value. It's, it's priceless if you do it right. Uh, and how would I go back if I wanted to work with somebody else, how would I go back and recreate the four years worth of learning that we've done together? Right? Mm -hmm. why, why would I even want to do that? And so I, I think that, that's my message to everybody who's out there is don't don't think that these things happen overnight. Don't get discouraged when the results initially aren't what you hope they would be because you're not going to categorize the results right. But focus on the relationship. 
Is the relationship getting stronger? Are you learning? Are you getting better? And if those things are happening, I bet there's some things happening in the background that your metrics aren't showing you that you're probably missing. And so finally, let's talk about consumers. How do we get our clients, our consumers, our partners, how do we get them to, how do we encourage them to get voice into their daily informational intake system? Uh, you know, how can we get them to start using voice to, you know, to start their day beyond just those, you know, those small, you know, kind of weather news, et cetera. Well, there are a few ways. The biggest thing to remember is that we were talking about the marketing rule of seven earlier. When you're introducing something new, whether it's a concept or product or behavior, it takes at least seven exposures to that message before people take action. It's usually more like some people say it's 22 exposures. Let's say it's like nine or 11. Just give yourself that many. You have to let them know it's there, whether it's a podcast or a wealth voice, which is uh, an app on Alexa. Um, you can put that out on the channels you're already using. Put it on your website. You could announce it in email. You could have a widget in your weekly email where you say, would you like to hear our latest update? Tap in here. Subscribe free. Always give them a quick link. Give them an easy way to get it. Don't just say, follow our podcast. And they're like, what's the name of it? Where do I? Nobody's going to go those extra steps. You have to make it a one-click thing. Um, just kind of position it. Always use the word you. It's not about us. It's not about I or me. It's about you. So you can get hands-free updates. You can hear our latest insights. You can hear bonus content. This is how you can get it. Give them a reason to want it. And that's the biggest thing. Like just continually promote it, but not in a salesy way, in a, in a value add way. In the channels, you're already active. Don't. It's not a silo. No one's going to just figure out, okay, I, I better go search for this podcast I've never heard of, or let me find this Alexa skill I've never heard of. And people need a little education on it. Once they get it though, they're going to be much more of a loyal listener than they would be a follower or you're competing with less. You don't have to compete with the entire inbox. Like all this magic around subject lines, trying to figure out what, what's going to get the clicks, what's going to get the opens. You don't have to mess with all that because it's like, there's nothing, there's very little else there. So that's a value. Um, yeah. Promoting it. You can put in your email signature. Like I do this. I, I promote my mini pod in my email signature. Think about places that people see you where people who already know, like, and trust you see, like the email signature is a really good one. I don't think people take advantage of this enough. You don't want to have a 16 lines of stuff in there. Keep it simple. Just basic contact info. But if you have something new, that's a good place to promote it. Hey, have you heard our latest episode? One click launch. Very good advice. So Emily, any other closing words? How can, uh, just one more time, how can our audience find you and, uh, and your firm and the work that you do? Everything is at emilybender.com. That's my homepage, my speaking clips, my blog, all my podcasts. And then you can check out Wealth Voice at wealthvoice.ai and you can request a demo and make sure you mention James or Silicon Hills in the where did you hear about us box. And I'll give you um, some special bonus goodies. Oh, there we go. Special bonus goodies. You heard that. You heard it here first. Well, Emily, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate uh, what you're doing for us and for the industry as a whole. And uh, we wish you the best of luck. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me, James. Thank you. And that's a wrap for the Voice from the Hills podcast with Emily Bender. You can find the podcast and our previous episodes from season one and two on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, 
or really on whatever platform you choose to listen. Thanks to everyone with Silicon Hills who's an integral part in making A Voice from the Hills a success. And of course, thank you for engaging with us and for sharing our content. We can only do our best work when you are here to listen.